Welcome back to the Health Longevity Secret Show, and I'm your host, Dr. Robert Lufkin. This episode delves into a fascinating story of a brain tumor survivor and how he transformed his life, not only to arrest the tumor, but also to begin a mission to slow his aging using more than a dozen epigenetic, metabolomic, and physiologic markers. Chris Mirabile is the founder and CEO of Novo Slabs and also a blogger at Slow My Age. Full disclosure, I, along with George Church and Matt Caberline, are on the, am on the scientific advisory board of Novo Slabs. But I do that because I'm excited about the work they're doing and I, I believe in their, their mission. Now, please enjoy this week's episode. Hey, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to hear about uh, your personal journey. I want our audience to hear about it because it's so compelling uh, what you went through that sort of set you on this course in your life. If you could share that with us, it would be great. Sure, sure. Happy to. So my journey starts at a young age, younger than most when it comes to longevity. So when I was 12 years old, I started getting into exercise and fitness. I saw an issue of Men's Health magazine at the bookstore, and I was inspired by by the people in that magazine. So I started exercising and watching my diet, which as I'm sure you remember back then was about low fat and high protein and um, and you know as many carbs as you wanted. And uh, uh, and it, it came as that much more of a surprise to me when just a few years later, when I was 16 years old, I was on a school trip in New York City, and it was just me and my teacher. Uh, next thing I knew, I, I was I was listening to a speech at the Federal Reserve Bank in downtown Manhattan, and I suddenly got dizzy and nauseous. And next thing I knew, I woke up, and I had blood all over my shirt, and the room was cleared out, and it was only my teacher and the security team at the Fed Bank because they were afraid for their gold storage in the basement. Um and uh, all of the blood was the result of me having a seizure and severing my tongue. And it turned out after they rushed me to the emergency room, it was caused by a brain tumor larger than a golf ball. It was on my left temporal lobe and it was bumping up against the hippocampus and they needed to do emergency surgery um, and radiation within just a few days. So Fortunately, uh, I've obviously lived uh, through the experience and I can tell the story, though I, I do joke about half of my brain being missing. So if I ever forget anything, that's the excuse. Uh, but going through that experience, it, it, was, it was transformative. I consider it to be a blessing to have had the opportunity at that age to see that side of life and to confront mortality and, and the chance of actually passing away. Uh, it, it, it made me value life that much more, uh, understand the fragility of life, yeah. made me want to do everything I could to avoid being in a position like that again, if I could help it. And, uh, it, it transformed me as a person. I went from playing on the high school football team to writing poetry on, on Friday nights instead of going out with friends and reflecting on the experience. So it was an eye opening experience and it planted a seed for me, which, eventually blossomed into the company I founded, Novos. But all the while, we're talking now a couple of decades between that event and me starting the company, I I, I ended up becoming a, a technology entrepreneur. And uh, But it, in my free time, I was still every bit as 
intensely focused on health and wellness. And so I would turn to PubMed to do research and to learn about different topics and any curiosities I had, I would go straight to the scientific papers or listen to some podcasts with some MDs or PhDs. And I would self-experiment with different diets, different sleep hacks, different supplements. And then I, of course, would biotrack, right? I, I would be doing the N equals one experiments with things like Apple Watch or uh, back then, like a polar heart rate strap. Now I use the aura ring and so on. So um, always have been quantitative and data-driven and looking to just improve my health, not only for today, but I think most importantly for tomorrow, for the long-term. Because as you know, being a medical doctor, oftentimes what's recommended uh, by the medical establishment or even the wellness community is oftentimes short-sighted. It's for a very short-term goal. Uh, but it's not always looking at long-term outcomes. What can happen from this lifestyle intervention or this prescription drug, not in the next year or two, but in 10 years or 20 or 30 years down the road, oftentimes that's not contemplated, but that's something that has always been a focus of mine is both short-term and long-term consequences because of my experience. Yeah, I mean, you had a, a, a close encounter with the medical establishment there, very intensive, and then um, and then you began looking at, uh, at at lifestyle things and other factors that that you felt were were not being properly communicated. What are some of those things that you that you discovered that uh, you, that you think that maybe the the current uh, healthcare establishment or at least back then wasn't adequately communicating to you? Well, so I'll give you a more general example um, that I actually wrote about in a blog post of mine. So I have a, a blog called Slow My Age. And, and one of the articles, I talk about uh, how, for example, uh, if, if you have uh, indigestion, if you have uh, gastric reflux, um, the doctor might tell you to take something like Nexium. And Nexium, once a prescription drug, is now available over the counter. Uh what most people don't realize is that Nexium should only be taken for a few weeks or a few months just until symptoms subside. And ideally, you should actually be figuring out what the root cause is. Presumably, it's it's oftentimes caused by your diet, the types of foods that you're ingesting. Uh, if you're taking it for a long period of time, it has a higher uh, incidence of cancer. Uh, it reduces your body's ability to absorb a lot of critical nutrients. And so it's really not intended for people to take for years. I have family members who like to eat their spicy foods and their fried foods and so on, and they get a lot of gastric reflux from it. So they are permanently on Nexium and their doctor has never even made them aware that it's not a long-term solution. So my concern is that oftentimes there's recommendations for uh, some cr uh, short-term acute condition that should stay short-term and acute but it actually ends up becoming chronic because people aren't adapting their lifestyles. They're not understanding fully why these symptoms and side effects are taking place. And they look at it as, well, let me just take this drug that's going to solve all problems without understanding that there's actually going to be problems down the line, down the road, if they don't address the root cause, which is actually, you know, the, the foundation of preventative medicine in the first place is, is being aware of what can cause these illnesses in the long term and stopping them before they actually progress in the first place. So I think yes. as, as you know the the medical establishment traditionally is not particularly good at the preventative side of things and that's partly why 
longevity is such a refreshing take on the space. Yeah, and, and certainly a lot of uh, modern medicine is directed at treating the symptoms of disease. And the, the danger of that is that by treating the symptoms, the patient sort of forgets about the disease. And oftentimes with many of the chronic diseases, as we're talking about, the disease progresses, even though the symptoms go away. Like uh, the classic example is someone with a heart attack which is from narrowing of the coronary arteries to the heart and limiting the amount of blood to the heart. The most common treatment today for that, for an acute heart attack is to place a stent, which mechanically opens the vessel. And for many patients, they think, you know, wow, that I'm treated, I'm better, when really you're literally only treating the symptoms. And of course, the coronary artery disease progresses if you don't change your lifestyle and the stent, even the stent will re-clog off and narrow, narrow again. Um, one of the things, hey, go ahead. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but, but yeah. you, you had asked me a, a personal example. One came to mind while you were speaking. Uh, I can give you a quick one. So, you know, after, after my, my brain tumor and recovery, uh, I was having trouble focusing and, um, and, and uh, my memory was, was kind of shot partly from the inflammation, partly from the uh, anti-seizure medication and so on. But eventually when I was off of all of that, I was still having issues. And so the medical establishment recommends taking an ADHD drug, uh, namely Adderall uh, or Ritalin. Uh, and then in the wellness community, I mentioned that the wellness community isn't always perfect either. There are some influencers in that space that uh, have recommended taking drugs like modafinil. Um, again, a prescription drug that we don't really know what the long-term side effect of upregulating histamine in the brain is actually going to have right in decades to come. So when I didn't want to go down this path and I did research of my own, and I looked at, for example, my genetics with 23andMe analysis, and then fed that into third-party tools, which highlighted that, for example, I have the well-known MTHFR C677T homozygous mutation. I realized, huh, maybe I could use more B vitamins. Uh, maybe, maybe I could use... expand on that a little bit for our audience, oh, sure. if you don't mind. That would, yeah, that's an important, sure. important concept. Happy to. So, so um, it's relatively well known, at least in in wellness circles. If you search for it online, um, a lot of people like to call it something else. If you can imagine MTHFR, what that kind of sounds like, um, and it's it's called that because of the negative effects that this. Um, genetic polymorphism can have on our ability to methylate and to detoxify the body. And methylation, as as you can speak to, Rob, is is a, a critical uh, body function for 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 unlimited different reactions that are taking place in the body, as well as epige the epigenome and is essentially expression of our genes, which genes are turned on and off. So it's critically important. And believe it or not, I believe uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of around 40% of the population has a heterozygous mutation. So uh, they they are uh, not fully methylating. And then if you have a homozygous mutation where both genes are mutated, like I do, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 or 16%, depending on ethnicity. Uh, then your your methylation can be downregulated by, I believe, as much as around 70% or so. And so you want to try to uh, uh, 
accommodate this or account for this uh, down regulation of, of the methyl methylation. So there are ways to do it. For example, uh, certain B vitamins can help to increase the methylation. Uh, methyl donors, which you can get from um, uh, nutrients like choline, which are found in egg yolks, or trimethylglycine, TMG, which is a, a supplement, uh, also known as betaine. Uh, there's there's a number of different supplements you can take to bring your your body back up to a more normal state of methylation. So that's one thing. Uh, I was also deficient in magnesium uh, and some other critical nutrients. So after digging into my genetic profile, also doing some research and looking at different blood labs and what are common deficiencies or insufficiencies for adults in America, magnesium being one of them, but there are many others we can talk about. I then decided to supplement and lo and behold, the attention difficulties disappeared. They subsided. I was able to focus without having to take a prescription drug. Now, why am I concerned about, about Adderall specifically? It's just one that we can pick on because Adderall, the analogy I like to give is that it's, it's kind of like a fire hose. So it's, it's, uh, and when I say fire hose, that's for like the dopamine and the norepinephrine. So these neurotransmitters that are what keep us alert and attentive, particularly if we're being chased by a tiger or a lion, right? In evolutionary terms, it releases a very large amount of that. And so what can happen is uh, we, first of all, the receptor sites for these different neurotransmitters start to downregulate because there's so much of it. So you tend to need to increase the dosage over time. Um, and then if you ever eventually go off of it, it's it's very commonly reported in online forums that people fall into depression and that can last a long time. Um, and there's also a lot of oxidative damage that can come from that much release of these neurotransmitters. So overall, it's not something that I want to use. And I'm not even talking about the cardiovascular implications of, of Adderall, which is something that's also been studied. So overall, I want to figure out what the root cause of me not being attentive and able to focus was. I was able to successfully do that. It takes some patience. It's not a quick fix, but ultimately I'm much healthier for having put that effort in. Yeah, and, and you you mentioned earlier a lot of a lot of the speakers on on this uh, program and and a lot of our audience is uh, um, questioning or looking at the value of nutritional changes. And in the beginning, just to to go back, one thing you mentioned that you were on a um, a low fat uh, diet um, following the the pyramid and the USDA recommendations. Um, how is your thinking on that changed or is that is that a, a factor here as well so so it did uh, there was this this period where i was experimenting with different diets so in my late 20s it, it became the paleo diet uh, i was um, a fan at the time of the perspective of let's eat the foods that we evolved with it makes a lot of uh, rational logical sense um since then my thinking has has evolved from that where it is not that necessarily foods that we evolved with are, are are ideal for us today. Now, many of them might be, but there might actually be other foods that are even more ideal for us today. If we look at it from the perspective of longevity and what's going to increase our health span and lifespan, because evolution just cares about us living long enough to procreate and to be able to take care of the children, or maybe as long as the grandchildren, but not, not that far. That's really just to instill the wisdom to later generations. But after that evolution doesn't really care about our lifespans. So if we're talking about living to 
90, 100 or, or longer, we might want to look at diet in a different way. After the paleo diet, I, I then kind of converted it into like a paleo keto style diet. Uh, so this is now in my early 30s, uh, almost a decade ago now. And that was all the all the rage at the time. Uh, I found some some benefits from the ketogenic diet. And uh, and then I also found some costs for it. And, and part of the reason why I may have found some costs uh, is because I'm very physically active. I have a low body fat percentage and it's going to impact me differently than somebody who m might have excess body fat, for example, where they've got the stores of, of lipids that they can tap into um, when, when they're on, on a, on a ketogenic diet. I, I also think that I was probably just not eating enough food on that ketogenic diet. I didn't have as much hunger as I do when I'm eating carbohydrates in, in my diet. And so I was probably also more hypocaloric more often than, than I, I probably should have been. Uh, but I just couldn't force myself to eat that much more, but side effects that I noticed from the diet were that, uh, I, I, first of all, my mood would change. I, I, I was very focused. I could focus even better than, than normal. Uh, but I, I was not as optimistic and positive as I would be normally when I eat carbs. So this is very unique to me. I'm not saying that this is for other people. Um, also my libido was shot. Um, it disappeared pretty much. Um, so there's something hormonally happening as well. And what I found was that if I wanted to do a ketogenic diet and, I, and every so often I still go into ketosis, I would, prefer to uh, do it for short periods of time, like maybe a week or two weeks in keto and then bringing carbs back into my diet. I've noticed that my athletic performance is better by doing that as well. But I did experiment with that and, and spent a lot of time researching the, the benefits of uh, potential benefits of the ketogenic diet and measuring my blood ketone levels and, and all of that. Right. So, uh, and, and more recently, like where I find myself now is a modified version of the Mediterranean diet. So research finds that the Mediterranean diet, at least for the sake of longevity, um, is is perhaps the best diet that, that we can um, uh, sub subscribe to. So everything from different um, uh, diseases like cardiovascular disease or neurodegenerative diseases, uh, people who are on Mediterranean diets uh, tend to fare better. Uh, there's been recent analysis of the epigenomes of people who are on Mediterranean diets compared to other types of diets like vegetarian and vegan and um, carnivore diets and so on. And it's been found that the Mediterranean diet has slower biological rate of aging. And uh, uh, so we, at my company, we've slightly modified the Mediterranean diet. We call it the Novos Longevity Diet. The foundation of it is Mediterranean. It's 90% of the diet. But then there are little tweaks that we make in terms of, for example, reducing the dairy consumption and uh, replacing that because dairy contains a number of things like galactose. For example, most people aren't aware of galactose, not lactose, but galactose. And galactose has actually been found to accelerate aging. It's used in mouse studies to accelerate the aging of mice. And, um, and that's something that being longevity minded, we want to avoid that molecule. It's not as present in, in cheeses because of the fermentation process. It's still there, but it's less. I still have some cheese in my diet, but I don't have uh, regular milk um, in, in my diet. There's there's a number of different tweaks. We have it on our website. If you go to novoslabs.com slash diet, I don't want to focus too much on all of the specifics of that.
Yeah, yeah, no, but I, you bring out an important point that uh, we're all different. Our bodies all react differently to things and what, you know, one nutritional type may work for one person may not work in the others. And we always have to pay attention to our body and look what works. Um, one one thing with the Mediterranean diet, uh, how do you feel about grains? Uh, some people are critical of the pro-inflammatory aspect of the proteins and the gluten and everything. Yeah. So, so that's one of the other tweaks, right? So I mentioned milk. Another tweak that we make is to try to replace as many of those grains as possible with uh, vegetables, with mushrooms, especially mushrooms are, have a lot of uh, healthy compounds in them. And uh, a lot of people don't include those in their diets. Uh, and then if you are going to have grains, ideally it's like the ancient grains, like quinoa, for example, um, also consider, you know, maybe sweet potatoes or purple potatoes. Um, you know, they are starchy, but if you're having like vegetables and olive oil and protein in your meal, and then you're having that towards the end of the meal, it's not going to have the same impact on your blood glucose as it would be if you're just eating a potato on its own with nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that make that makes a lot of sense. The, um, all these chronic diseases, um, how did they as you as you transitioned and you became more interested in longevity what's the what's the tie between longevity and these chronic diseases how are they related well so so there's i guess a couple of ways to to answer that question one is that um when when you have one of these chronic diseases uh the the timer starts in terms of your lifespan right so if if you get a chronic disease when you're in your 50s the chances you're going to live until you're 90 or 100 is is much, much lower than if you're able to stave off that disease for a longer period of time. So the other way to look at it is just that longevity medicine in, in general, it's looking at aging as a disease. I know that's a controversial statement and you know whether you agree with that or not, doesn't really matter in, in my mind. What, what matters is that aging, the aging process itself is the common denominator for these chronic illnesses, uh, diseases of aging, so to speak. So the number one risk factor, for example, for uh, lung cancer is not cigarette smoke, it's aging. And if you go down the list of most forms of cancer, not all, but most forms of cancer, cardiovascular disease and strokes, uh, neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, uh, sarcopenia, the, the loss of muscle mass as we age, type two diabetes and metabolic disorders, glaucoma. I mean, just go down the list. The number one risk factor for all of these is aging. So if you have a pro longevity mindset and you are trying to live a life that is focused on longevity as, as the uh, lens through which you are looking at the health decisions, the lifestyle decisions you're making, you're not only going to reduce the odds for these diseases or delay them, uh, you will, by extension, increase lifespan because the diseases are taking place later or not occurring in the first place. Uh, and you're also going to improve your health here and now. So uh, when I started Novos, one of the unique selling propositions, the perspectives that we took, uh, and this was after consulting with a lot of scientists in the field, was to address all 12 hallmarks of aging. At the time, there were nine. Now there are 12. All 12 hallmarks of aging simultaneously. And these hallmarks of aging are essentially the biological causes of aging, right? So uh, your audience is probably familiar with some of them, you know, 
common terms like mitochondrial dysfunction um, or, or uh, stem cell rejuvenation. But then there are other less commonly known ones like cellular senescence is starting to become popularized, but it's a lesser known term, uh, loss of proteostasis. So there's, there's a dozen of these. And if you have a, a prolongevity lifestyle and you're, uh, uh, by extension, you're going to be addressing these. And what's important is that that then means that you're going to be more biologically optimized today as well. So it's not like you're just buying an insurance policy and you're seeing your money disappear for the possibility that, you know, sometime decades down the road, you're going to need to redeem that. You're not only getting that, but you're also getting short-term benefits. So it's better than a life insurance policy. You're getting things here and now when you have this type of perspective on health. Well, so there, there are obvious advantages to attacking aging or, or uh, going after achieving longevity that that benefits all these chronic diseases. So everything's really linked together there. So when you when you started this, what did you see out there that wasn't being done in the longevity space? In other words, you, you founded a company. What does this company hope to accomplish that other people weren't doing or that other people had overlooked? Sure. So I'll, I'll give a quick story about that. So when I was, let's see, at this point, I'm, I'm in my early 30s. And I had come across the paper, The Hallmarks of Aging in the journal Cell. And this was, it's now considered the seminal paper for the longevity space. Uh, they since updated it to 12 hallmarks this year, those same authors. But uh, back then, that was a moment of epiphany for me because I saw, as I was mentioning, like, I, I wanted to look at my health, not only for short-term goals, like better focus or better athletic performance and so on, but I also wanted to think of long-term, is this going to help me or hurt me decades down the road? And I never really had a clear understanding of how to look at that. But when I came to this paper, that's when I saw, oh, wow, we actually understand what is causing us to age in the first place. Not completely, but a large amount of that aging process we've understood. And so if I can look through this lens, uh, when I think about the health decisions that I'm making, uh, I, I, in theory, will be able to make more informed, better decisions. And so fast forward uh, a, a few years after that, I started attending events in the, in the biology field. Uh, in fact, I, it was a, a, a coincidence, serendipity. Uh, that I came across an event at NYU Medical Center. So I was volunteering there. That's where my brain tumor was removed. And so I was volunteering in the pediatric ward where I was treated, just uh, spending time with the kids there. And I was doing it four hours a week for, for a few years. I, I suddenly came across this poster on the wall for the mitochondrial summit, which most people would walk right past it. But I got all excited seeing researchers' names whose work I was familiar with. And I said, I got to go to this event. So I went and that's when it really started because I, I started talking to the, the researchers, the scientists, and asking them questions about different molecules, natural over-the-counter molecules that were associated with these different hallmarks of aging and having favorable effects on them. And I wanted to hear from them firsthand, are these ingredients actually going to have a positive effect on the aging process or is it all hype? like, does it require a pharmaceutical intervention like rapamycin, or is it something that we can actually derive significant benefits from over-the-counter ingredients? And I honestly didn't know what a scientist would say about that. Uh, I was actually pleasantly surprised when they were telling me how bullish 
how enthusiastic they were about these different types of molecules and the impact that they could potentially make on aging. And when I presented the concept, the idea of addressing all hallmarks simultaneously, they got very excited saying, that's probably the best way to put a dent in the aging process if you address all hallmarks at the same time, because as you very well know, it's this complex web, these hallmarks of aging, right? If you have DNA damage, you're going to accelerate telomere attrition. You're going to accelerate uh, inflammation. All of these things are interconnected with each other. So if you only fix one thing, for example, take the analogy of a car. If you have an old car and you only fix the tire uh, and you, you ignore the engine and the oil you need to put it in and so on, it's only a matter of time before that car breaks down again, right? So uh, this perspective was was new to them. It was not anything in the market. And uh, specifically to your question, what was not being done in, in the space? Well, when it comes to actual longevity science, not talking about yesterday's industry of anti-aging, which is really just not based on strong science. And it's largely just aesthetics, like hiding the signs of aging with a skin cream or something, but actually addressing the underlying causes of aging. There wasn't really anything strong out there coming from this perspective of the hallmarks of aging and the latest research in the space. So the only work that was being done was on the biotech side and the pharmaceutical side. And these things I saw as not being accessible for the vast majority of people. What are the odds I was going to get a doctor to prescribe these to me that I would be able to afford them, much less my friends and family who are even less inclined to do this than I am? The answer was not very likely. So I wanted to create something that I could take I could give to my loved ones. I could release it for the community at large to be able to use it as well and find benefits from. And nothing nothing existed at that point. There were small attempts in this space, but nothing revolutionary. Like some companies selling nicotine on my riboside, um, maybe terastilbene, but like there wasn't really much being done. And uh, so we created this, this formulation that we filed for patents on that is, like I mentioned, the first to address all 12 hallmarks and to do so in, in, a, in a relatively aggressive but safe way. Yeah, I, I think well, I mean, one, of the, one of the good things about uh, attacking a chronic disease like uh, diabetes, type 2 diabetes or heart attack, you can, you can look at a marker like the A1C levels and immediately tell if it goes up or down. Or, you know, you can do a coronary calcium score and look at the, the calcium the challenge uh, for longevity, although it, it hits all the most of the chronic diseases, of course, the challenge is um, how we 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 track longevity because it, it you, the obvious thing you can wait till someone dies, but but with any of these interventions, ideally, it's good to have something that tells us we're on the right path or not, or we're doing the right thing, and so. How have you? How do you look at that as far as monitoring? Uh, what are your go-to tests? How do you feel? What What should people use to monitor their longevity if they if they're in one of these programs like you have, or you know any any longevity program? What do you recommend? Yeah, so so there's a spectrum, uh, and that spectrum depends on who the stakeholder is. Like we as a company are going to do a lot more when it comes to scientific R&D than an end user will be doing. So specifically to your question of what someone in your audience can do, there's a number of markers. Uh, I actually tr uh, track some of them on my blog that I mentioned before, Slow My Age. And I, I share how 
I was able to reduce my my biological uh, aging by approximately 39%. And this is coming from a wide range of tests. So we can talk about a few of those tests. But then if you care, I can also talk about how we validate our product. We do in vitro studies, we do animal studies, we do human studies. And that's a whole other set of you know larger populations improving it out in, in that case. But for, for individuals, so some of the, the, the things that I've measured, for example, uh, my telomere length, my telomeres, uh, or all of our telomeres, are these are the end caps of our chromosomes that protect our DNA. They get shorter with time and based on cellular divisions. Uh, telomeres are not directly uh, correlated to the to our biological or chronological age. I mean, there is a correlation, but it's it's not that strong. It's probably 0.3 or 0.4. Uh, what what is stronger, uh, or or what they're more important uh, to look towards for is if you reach what's called the telomeric brink. So the point at which your telomeres have become too short. And I believe that that is about five kilo base pairs. So uh, it's kind of like a check off the box metric. You can see if your telomeres are getting too short, there are things you can do to slow down uh, telomere attrition. There are things that can even lengthen telomeres. But for that, uh, my the measurement I got was that my uh, telomere age was 29.4 years younger than my chronological age. So that implies 79% slower aging. Now that's pretty extreme. I don't think I'm actually an eight year old. So uh, I take it with a grain of salt, but um, it is in a, in a very healthy range. Now, the things that I'm more excited about are these epigenetic methylation clocks. We mentioned methylation earlier about the genetic polymorphism, polymorphism MTHFR and how uh, that uh, inhibits the methylation process. Well, Methylation is, is part of the epigenome. So the epigenome is a layer that kind of sits on top of your genes and determines which genes should be turned on and off. Sort of like if your genes are the piano, your uh, epigenome is the piano player. And when you're young, it might come out like a beautiful Tchaikovsky symphony. And when you're older, you might start like missing some keys or you hit the wrong key um, or you hit a key too hard or another key too soft. So it, it's no longer sounding the way that it was supposed to. And certain what that actually means for us is certain cells are not behaving the way that they're supposed to behave. They're being programmed uh, to, to behave differently, so to speak. Uh, but there are patterns that emerge and there are algorithms that can then detect these, these patterns and essentially tell you how old you are biologically. Now, there's a lot of misconceptions in this space where people think it, it, they take it literally, or they present it as if it's literal. So for me, for example, at nearly 40 years old, my biological age says I'm about 25. I'm not 25 years old. I don't look 25 years old. But the way that I interpret this is that this is correlated to my morbidity and mortality risk. So I have probably about um, the risk of getting an illness or passing away as a typical 25 year old would which I think is a lot more realistic, but there are still other aspects of me like my appearance that are still aging. So with that said, I, I've done uh, 10 different epigenetic clocks. Um, they average to 39% uh, slower aging. Um, and the the one I, I care most about is, uh, it's called true age, sorry, not true age. It's called uh, Dunedin Pace. The Dunedin Pace clock is uh, it's based on research done at Columbia and Duke University. 
It is the most precise and accurate of the biological age clocks out there. It's a third generation clock. There are first and second generation clocks out there on the market that are just not as accurate, not as powerful, not as precise. Um, and what's unique about the Dunedin pace clock is it tells you your pace of aging at this point in time. So uh, for example, if, you're, if your result is one, that means that every one chronological year, you're aging at a rate of one biologically. If you got a 0.69, which is my result, that implies 31% slower aging at this point in time. If you smoke a pack a day, you're probably going to get 1.2 or something like that. You're aging 20% faster than, than people. What's really interesting about all of this, and it's, it's a really nice way to depict it, is the researchers in their scientific paper when they published it, they, they took the 10 slowest aging, the 10 average aging, and the 10 fastest aging people in their cohort, both male and female, and they used computer software to merge the faces. And so they showed what the average of the 10 slowest aging male and females look like, and the same for, for average aging and then fastest aging. And when you look at them, they're all, I believe, 45 years old. When you look at them side by side, the difference is so stark. You look at that that slowest aging group and compare it to the fastest aging group. And it looks like they're 20 years different um, in terms of their chronological age when they're actually chronologically equal and it's just biological differences. And that just goes to show it's a manifestation of what's also happening internally to our organs and our risk of disease and so on of the lifestyle decisions we make. And if we're living a pro longevity lifestyle versus one that isn't. Uh, there are other tests we can talk about, like physiological markers, things like VO2 max, max heart rate, even uh, metabolomic uh, clocks, which are cutting edge and not really you know, ready for the mainstream yet, but they're starting to be uh, put together. Happy to talk about those as well, but yeah, any direction well, you want. The, the DNA epigenetic methylation clocks you mentioned are very powerful, but an important point I just wanted to underscore was the, the third generation Dunedin pace based kind of clocks, they measure acceleration of aging or the rate of change of aging. What are the first two generations? Could you just tell us that for the, for our audience? Because those are still available, some of them on the market as well. So you should, yes. you, you can ask what type of test you're getting if you're going to purchase a uh, epigenetic methylation test for age, biological age. Yes. So the, the first generation is made famous by uh, the person who essentially invented them, uh, Steve Horvath. And so if you hear of like the Horvath clock, for example, that is a first generation clock that is trained on chronological age. So when they first came up with the idea for this, as you might imagine, they were trying to predict how old the test subject is without actually seeing that person and knowing anything about them, just taking their blood, looking at their epigenome and predicting how old they are chronologically. After they did that, they came to the realization that what's perhaps more important is not trying to pinpoint how old they are chronologically, but to understand that there's a difference in biological age and that that's actually more important to predict things like morbidity and mortality. So that's when second generation clocks came, came into uh, existence. The uh, better known ones and the more powerful ones, one is uh, Morgan Levine had the pheno age clock, uh, uh, pheno meaning phenotypes. So basically the manifestations of, of, of our health. Um, and then there's the grim age clock. The grim age clock uh, was a project that Steve Horvath was involved in. 
And that that's actually a very powerful second generation clock. In terms of predicting mortality, the Grimage clock and the Dunedin Pace clock are are neck and neck. They're 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 practically the same level of accuracy for that. Um, but then when you you get to uh, predicting morbidity and predicting quality of life. So quality of life would be like your ability to have proper gait, your grip strength, your ability to uh, stand up from the floor without needing help. These things that are are markers of uh, of aging and quality of life, the Dunedin Pace Clock is the best for that as well. So quality of life, morbidity, Dunedin Pace is best. And then for mortality, Dunedin Pace and Grim Age the second generation clock are neck and neck with each other. Yeah. And certainly these, like you say, the methylation clocks um, and, and the metabolomic clocks are coming, but the methylation clocks are sort of the gold standard. Now the cutting edge, uh, I guess the downside is they're expensive on the order of, you know, a couple hundred dollars or so, depending on how you get them done. So you might want to do it, you know, once once in a while is there any any longevity what test what's a go-to inexpensive test do you think a, a marker that someone who's you know following your plan or on a longevity path that they could they could check on a you know weekly basis or something like that any any grip strength or what what what's good to check do you think yeah it's a good question i mean if you're going to do something like grip strength you need to do it consistently and and then look at like the trend of that data because things like even just dehydration or poor sleep the night before or exercising the day before can all have a significant impact on what your grip strength is going to be for that day. So you would need to make sure you're doing this long enough and enough measurements to be able to track the trend line. And a lot of people probably aren't going to do it methodically enough to, to really be able to rely on that. Um, you know, there are other things like, for example, VO2 max is very strongly correlated with uh, lifespan and, and health. Uh, so this is the maximum uh, oxygen volume that our bodies can can uh, uh, absorb uh, per minute. And so uh, it, it different devices, like, for example, the Apple Watch um, and Polar and Garmin devices and so on, uh, they have algorithms to measure VO2 max. They're not going to be perfectly accurate compared to if you went to a lab and had it done professionally where they put the mask on your face and they're measuring uh, either your CO2 output. But with that said, they are pretty precise. So if you're really just, I think what's most important is to make sure you're trending in the right direction, that you're increasing your VO2 max. Uh, and, and with that said, they're not that far off in terms of accuracy. Like um, mine... It was 55.5 ml um, last time I got it professionally tested. And my Apple watch was only a couple of points below that. So it's right in that neighborhood. So uh, so I think that that's a good one that people, you know, if you, if you do uh, some, you know, depending on your age, it might determine how intensely you exercise and do cardiovascular exercise. But if you're at least getting into zone two cardio and doing that consistently, these watches can can predict it. And if you can push yourself to get into like zone four or five, just a little bit so that the these devices can detect how, like what your slope is, then you'll get relatively accurate numbers with VO2 max. And as long as you have the device, then it's free. You can test it literally every single day. Yeah. What one we, other, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. What, what, one other, one other idea, this, this isn't going to be as 
Uh, it's not going to change as quickly, but we do offer on our website completely free something called FaceAge. And FaceAge is facial AI technology. You take a selfie with your smartphone and then the AI is going to, based on more than 12 million uh, people data set, is going to tell you how young you look and then different skin health markers like wrinkles, inflammation, pore size, et cetera. And so that's not something that is going to change like from one day to the next. But if you wanted to like maybe once a month or once every couple of months, track it, just make sure you have the same lighting conditions and you're well hydrated. Uh, you can see how your your facial aging is is progressing over time. And if you slow down your pace of aging, you'll slow down the facial aging aspect as well as was demonstrated in that Dunedin um, example that I gave of the younger and older looking 45-year-olds. Yeah, that's a that's a great example. And well, in our last, we're almost out of time here. But one thing I wanted to mention about Novos in particular as a company or a ask you to speak about it a little bit was structurally, when you set it up, it's set up as a public benefit corporation. How is that different than a C-Corp like Johnson & Johnson or Merck? Or what, what is a public benefit corporation? People may not be familiar with that, that designation. Yeah, it's not particularly well known, but it's something that I wanted to set the company up as when I started the company because I... I I'm doing this for personal passion, right? So between my my brain tumor and then when I was getting started with uh, filing the paperwork and getting Novos started, um, my mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and then I unfortunately lost her to it. And I was closer to my mother than anyone else in my life. So I dedicated the company to her. And you know the, the pain that that disease causes the individual afflicted with it, but also the family members uh, and, and friends, um, it's just, it's at times it's unbearable and it's not something that, that anyone should have to go through, even if it is a fact of life, if we can minimize that wherever we can, that's what I want to do. And so by starting Novos as a public benefit corporation, it gives us a little bit more leeway when it comes to the uh, fiduciary responsibility and decisions that I make. So typically for a C-Corp, um, you're expected to maximize shareholder interest at, at all times. You're looking out for shareholders. You want to maximize profit. And um, uh, when you're a public benefit corporation, it gives you a little bit more flexibility to make some decisions that are still mindful of shareholders. We are a for-profit business, but it gives us flexibility to do things for the public interest. So if I have two decisions, uh, two options for a decision I can make, uh, one of which gives me $10, uh, but does nothing for the public. The other one gives me $9, but does something great for the public. I can take that and still be uh, following the uh, corporate charter and bylaws of, of the business. So I like having that ability. We're not a nonprofit. Uh, we're still for-profit, but it gives us something closer to that nonprofit perspective of, of being able to do things for, for uh, the public at large. Yeah, it's great. It's great having that option. Um, how can how can people follow you on social media, Chris, and and also find out about your your blog and 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 your company? Sure. So my company is Novos Labs. So NovosLabs.com. We're on all of the social networks from Instagram X, as it's now called, uh, TikTok, and so on as Novos Labs. And then I have my personal blog where I share my personal lifestyle routine. Uh, my biological uh, age results and so on. That's slowmyage.com. 
And then I'm on X and Instagram as slow my age. Oh, that that's great. Well, well, thank you. Oh, and one thing I think you wanted to offer at the end was um, if people want to go to your site, there's a discount code that um, they can apply to use for discounts and, and they can check the amount. It'll be disclosed later, but a small <laughs> amount that'll, that'll discount if you wanted to share that with them as well. Yeah. So for all of our products, so we have formulations, Novos Core, Novos Boost, and then we have uh, Novos Age, which is the biological age test. It includes do need and pace. It also includes a biological age clock and the telomere length. Uh, you can enter the code at checkout Lufkin MD, and you'll get that discount applied. Well, I can certainly remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Thanks. This has been a wonderful hour, Chris. I want to thanks, thank you so much for sharing uh, your story and and the the and thank you so much for the work you're doing in in this space and and helping so many people. Of course, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. One of the most common questions I get asked are which blood tests I rely on most heavily for myself. And that's really a whole topic unto itself, but I'm gonna and I'm gonna cover it in future programs. But simply put, there are about 17 or so biomarkers that I check on myself on a regular basis. Now, the way I do it is from my home with a simple finger stick like, like this. <laughs> and and then I just mail it in. It costs less than $10 per marker, and I get the results right away. If you want to try this um, test for yourself, you can check my website, uh, robertlufkinmd.com, under Secrets, and use the code SAVE10, S-A-V-E, the number 10, for $10 off. Try it. Let me know how it goes if you like it. If you're enjoying this program, please hit that subscribe button, or even better, leave a review. Your support makes it possible for us to create the quality programming that we're continually striving for. Also, let us know if there is a certain topic that you would like to see covered or a particular guest that you would like to hear from. This is for general information and educational purposes only, and it's not intended to constitute or substitute for medical advice or counseling. The practice of medicine or the provision of healthcare or diagnosis or treatment or the creation of a physician, patient, or clinical relationship. The use of this information is at their own, uh, own user's risk. If you find this to be on the value, please hit that like button to subscribe to support the work that we do on this channel. And we take the, your suggestions and advice very seriously. So please let us know what you'd like to see on this channel. Thanks for watching and we hope to see you next time.